welcome to Rising. Thank you for tuning in this morning. Brianna Joy Gray is back from the Midwest. Is that where yes, you were? Yes, from good old Cleveland, Ohio. We were we were nearby, sort of. That's true. That's true. I hear you walloped us in the football games. <laughs> yes. Uh, the, about the only sports event I actually care about, the Michigan-Ohio State game. Uh, it was a fantastic game, crushing Michigan victory, which has me very excited. Look, I'm happy to give you that one, Robbie. A win is a win. If we can all share it around the table here. Well, I appreciate it. What are we talking about? Well, Joe Biden is continuing to just shrug off polling, showing voters are less than enthusiastic uh, to give his administration another four years. Here's Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre at the podium yesterday. Given the president's sagging poll numbers and the fact that he is currently placing behind any Republican opponent, has there been any talk in this White House about a change in strategy or staffing going forward in reflection of those numbers to continue to show him underwater? No. And there was also a call out in recent weeks to staff, to senior officials, that if you want to go by the end of the year, go, otherwise you're here for the duration of the rest of the term. Is there, has, should we be anticipating any departures of either cabinet officials or other senior officials? Look, I can't speak to people's personal decisions. I just don't, we don't have anything to announce uh, at this time. And, uh, you know, we're gonna continue to do the work uh, that the president set out to do. Of course, Fox News' Peter Ducey didn't miss his chance to hold KJP's feet to the flames when it comes to the economy and how Americans are faring under Bidenomics this holiday season. On lowering prices, you said earlier that the actions the president has taken have worked. So is it your sense that when people were home for Thanksgiving, catching up with their family members, they were saying to each other, can you believe how much more affordable things have gotten? So honestly, I wouldn't... Uh, I, I hear the question, but I want to make sure this is very clear. We take that very seriously. We take what families, families, the decisions that they make at their kitchen table, whether it's at, whether it's during Thanksgiving or whether it is every month as they're trying to make hard decisions uh, about how they move forward with taking care of their family. We take that very seriously. It's not a joke to us. It is important to us. This is the president who talks about it in a very personal way when he talks about what, what families have to go through, working families, middle-class families, and that's why he's taking actions that he has. Now, according to the Washington Post, the president's handling of Israel's war in Gaza has rattled his administration and turned some members of the president's own team against him. Over on Fox News this weekend, national security spokesman John Kirby answered to the internal turmoil. Let's watch. The president understands that there's strong feelings uh, all across the board here uh, on this conflict between Israel and Hamas, and he respects that. Um, and, and we have uh, listened to staff members here at the National Security Council and across the administration from all different communities, from the Jewish community, from the Muslim community, Palestinian, Arab community. Uh, we're listening to everybody because they all have a view, and we respect that and want to hear uh, their thoughts. The president uh, continues to work this issue very, very hard, and from the president's perspective, and you heard him talk about this a little bit yesterday. What we've been doing has been having results. Uh, Israel needs to be able to defend itself against a truly genocidal threat that Hamas poses. And so we're going to continue to give them the tools and the capabilities to go after that threat, as well as lessons learned from our own experience in urban warfare against terrorists. Well, uh, we're also working, but wait, 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 Martha, we're also working very, very hard, as we've been talking about for the last few minutes, to get hostages out, to get Americans out. Some 850 Americans have been able to leave, thanks to our leadership. 
As a reminder, polling from earlier this month found that president is losing support most chiefly from young Democrats, whopping 70 percent of whom don't support Biden's handling of the war in the Middle East. Ooh, yeah, those poll numbers are bad, and you can kind of hear the panic in Kirby as he tries to rationalize. He gives a little bit of a, I see you, I hear you, Arab Americans, I see you, I hear you, especially those concentrated in key states like your home state of Michigan. And there is no um, substantive response forthcoming. You hear from Karine Jean-Pierre, is, is there going to be a change in staff? Is anything going to be different? No, flat nose, flat nose, including in, within the context of Israel-Palestine. And what it increasingly feels like is that there's hope that the humanitarian pause, these temporary ceasefire, whatever you want to call it, is going to appease people. Biden said he was hopeful that it would last longer than the uh, initial uh, four-day period, um, and that by a year from now, the dust will have settled and people will have forgotten. But what so many Arab Americans and others are saying explicitly is, that's not the case. We will not forget. I have never said I'm not going to vote for a Democrat before. I've always voted blue no matter who. But this, the, the 20,000 20, people dead in a period of a six weeks or so is different. Yeah, it's clearly not appeasing the voters in Biden's coalition, which mm -hmm. is the issue. And also, particularly for young voters, you know, you can make the case that you know, Democratic voters or Republican voters on the other side, they vent their frustration with the candidate, but when push comes to shove, they cast their ballot for that person. Um, I think that's broadly more likely to be true the older the voter is in question. Mm -hmm. But we can see that young people are actually open to experimentation with third-party voters, uh, third-party candidates, with not voting, with other sort of arrangements. So to, to isolate this group in particular is going to be the hardest people to win back. And they're saying clearly that what they, that they don't think what Biden is doing is good enough. Biden thinks it's good enough. It's, it, might, it might be fine for other voters in his coalition, but it's clearly not resonating with these key supporters, and that's going to be a huge problem. Yeah. And I think part of the issue is that this most recent concern over events in Gaza is just the, the top layer of a lot of issues people have had with Biden from the jump. At the core of this are concerns about his age. Um, the majority of Democratic voters did not want him to be the nominee purely because of the age issue. On top of that, you have the economy, which was the um, a topic of the initial questioning at the top of this block here, where the White House keeps insisting that numbers are up, things are good, and there's some evidence for that, right? I, I was looking at economist Claudia Sam, who I like and respect and appreciate, talking about some aggregate numbers that are up. Wages overall are up, uh, for example. There's more jobs, um, lower unemployment, consumer spending is back up pre-COVID, et cetera. But the problem is, in very specific areas that Americans feel, I think, very sharply, prices are up exponentially. So you're talking U.S. grocery prices are up 25 percent, used car prices are up 35 percent, rent is up 20 percent. Those are big ticket items. So it might be the case that you have some increase to your wages. It might be the case that you have new employment. But is that really offsetting these big costs like Healthcare, groceries, um, cost of your vehicle, et cetera. Yeah, and it goes back to the fact that you know Joe Biden keeps touting economic successes in terms of recovery from the pandemic, which, fair enough, we all agree we're in better shape than this catastrophe that was visited upon us. That um, that you know no president, no leadership anywhere on earth was prepared to handle to deal with. So yes, we've gotten we've recovered from a lot of that. Fine. 
give appropriate credit where it's due. But are, are we back? You know, a lot of people, and I know you say, you know, the economy before Biden under Trump didn't work for everyone, but people clearly have fonder recollections of it. And I think that's stuck in their heads, and they are not at all satisfied with, with the job Biden has done. Just getting us back to somewhat not so far off where we were uh, from before the pandemic is not nearly good enough. And Look, no wonder people are wondering about giving Trump another crack at it. There's a meme going around that is not a partisan meme that says that 2016, alternately 2017, was the best year of our collective lives. Yes. <laughs> and it resonates with me. And those also happen to be the beginning of the Trump years. And I don't know how to... Reckon yeah. with that. I don't know exactly what it was. Was it just vibes that made 2016, 2017 feel so good to me? But I do think that Biden has to figure out how to recapture that. I definitely, I don't know that it was the best year of my life, but I didn't know that every subsequent year was <laughs> going to be a lot worse. I'll say that. <laughs> More rising right after this. We have breaking news this morning on the Hunter Biden front. The president's son has agreed to testify publicly before the House Oversight Committee. Now, Biden's attorney confirmed in a letter to James Comer this morning. Hunter Biden was subpoenaed by House Republicans earlier this month and summoned to appear for a closed-door interview on December 13th. However, in a letter sent today, an attorney for the president's son wrote to Chairman Comer, we have seen you use closed-door sessions to manipulate, even distort the facts, and misinform the public. We therefore propose opening the door. Republicans on the Hill have accused Hunter Biden of concocting a, quote, pay-for-play influence peddling scheme with his dad, Joe, when he was vice president to Barack Obama. Now, the GOP's impeachment inquiry into the president has stalled in recent weeks. We'll see if public testimony from the younger Biden could invigorate it. I'm happy for the testimony to be public. That's the way it should be uh, in any case, given the enormous public interest. I, I mean, I'm sure you can make an argument for pri maybe he would be more candid in private. Probably he's just going to plead the fifth and not say anything anyway. But let it be open to the people. This is a matter of enough of public interest where there's not really, I mean, uh, his, you know, his nude photos, his laptop, everything has been things he might want to only tell to investigators and members of Congress in private are basically publicly known at yeah. this point. So I'm not sure what the reason for it to be private. But it seems to me Republicans are perfectly willing to have it be public. I see Representative Anna Polina Luna tweeting um, that she's happy that he'll be testifying in a public setting. So I don't know if Comer actually did object to that or had initially just framed it as a private meeting. But anyway, public sounds good to me. Yeah, well, it's being framed as Hunter Biden calls Republicans bluff. And you heard that in the framing in his uh, attorney's letter saying, you guys have been wanting these closed-door meetings. You've been distorting the facts uh, that come out of closed-door testimony. So let's just have this open to the public. And I'm glad to hear that Anna Polina Luna at least um, is amenable to that. I do wonder if this feels at all like a gotcha to Republicans, who are going to have to, I think, substantiate and ask more pointed, substanti substantiated questions than they might be able to do in a kind of free-for-all, closed-door meeting, where you can just keep throwing things at the wall and see what sticks. There is some danger, I think, to conservatives looking like they don't actually have a thread to follow, that they've lost the plot, then it can become an inquiry into kind of the purient aspects of the laptop leak if they're not careful. So I do think that this ups the onus on them to be more prepared. But that's a good thing, I think, and it's in the public sure. interest. Yeah, time to put up or shut up. Time to put the questions you have to the actual man. Um, 
I think there is a risk, you're right, given uh, how much certainty Republicans have asserted criminal wrongdoing here and wrongdoing involving Joe Biden that uh, they've overreached and they look foolish. I think that's always a possibility. I would never count on Republicans to not embarrass themselves. Uh, however, I, I also think I'm sure Joe Biden and his team are not pleased about this yeah. at all. The, so the last thing they want ways. is Hunter Biden front and center talking about, taking questions about. They want this story to go away. They don't want it to be a media story. They don't want the media to cover it. They know conservative media is going to cover it. But they don't. They hate when it's talked about in mainstream media. And, if, and, and it's going to be a story when he's fielding these kinds of questions. And I'm sure that makes Joe Biden nervous, again, especially because the administration has taken the position that Biden had absolutely no involvement whatsoever with Hunter Biden, something that now seems like a very fishy assertion given the subsequent revelations. Um, lines that Team Biden has tried to adopt, like, oh, I wasn't actually at that party. Okay, I was at that party, but the relevant Ukrainian or whoever it was official, he wasn't there. Well, he was there, but I didn't really talk to him. Well, I, mean, I might have talked to him, but that kind of thing yeah. that's gone on and on with Team Biden, um, this has to be concerning for them. Look, this isn't the first time that Hunter Biden may be acting in a way that is not necessarily in line with his father's interests. We saw this around the discussion of the plea deal, where there's an argument he just should have taken it, even if he didn't get broad immunity. But rejecting it in the way that he did, making some of the vocal statements that he has done, Joe Biden's taken the position when asked, I support my son, I support my son. It is, I am curious whether we're ever going to get to a place where there is enough of a break um, between their respective interests, where Joe Biden does say something about how this kind of stuff is embarrassing and awkward. And I'm I would love to be a fly on the wall in some of these private conversations they are having. Does Joe Biden genuinely support his son to the extent that he is indifferent to the exposure that a public hearing like this will bring and the negative attention that it will bring to him as he is looking at dismal poll numbers in the middle of an election year, at the start of an election year? It's hard to imagine that the optics of this are going to be anything other than neutral at best for Joe Biden, and neutral in the way that it'll it'll hurt. Republicans a little, it'll hurt Biden, a little, it'll all cancel out. Not positive in the least. Do we really have that much confidence in Hunter Biden as an, as an interlocutor, <laughs> that he is going to be poised and charming and convincing and wholesome and credible in this context, or are we just all hoping for a draw? And if it's just the draw, why would, why would Joe Biden be okay with that? So what you're really asking is, uh, is Joe Biden ready to pull like, from succession the Logan Roy move and just ask his son to sacrifice himself for his professional ambitions? Um, that would be, I mean, so far, Joe Biden absolutely loves Hunter Biden and has stuck by him and has defended him, um, frankly, in a way that has uh, reflected somewhat negatively on his political uh, aspirations. This has come back to hurt to haunt uh, Joe Biden tremendously. So we'll see if there's ever a point um, where it's too much, and that would get really nasty. Also, in light of all of the media events that are going on now, it, it does feel like if there were ever an opportunity for Democrats to ignore the Hunter Biden stuff and for it to go away, this feels kind of right. But before Gaza, you know, there was more attention, I think, on domestic matters and what Joe Biden was doing and his family matters and Trump impeachments. Even We're not even talking about the Trump impeachments anymore, I think largely because foreign policy has taken a front seat. And again, it is interesting to say, OK, we're going to ignore this opportunity to kind of be flying with this Hunter Biden stuff under the radar, to have something like this happen that's going to be so good for ratings. The alternative way to look at it is, 
yes, people are paying attention to Gaza, but Gaza's hurting Biden. And maybe this is a, a good distraction from that even worse news story for the administration. Everything's hurting Biden. Yeah. I mean, that's why he's just, he's way down in polls versus Trump in the general and in, um, and in the various states. So there's just not a lot of good news anyway. I guess this could theoretically turn out uh, in a Biden advantageous way if the hearing is just a total dud. I mean, Hunter's probably not going to answer any questions. So then it, it will turn on how well Republicans frame and phrase their inquiry into Hunter Biden, how well specifically they tie Hunter by the attempt by Ukrainian and Chinese um, interests to leverage their relationship with Hunter in order to extort something right. from Joe Biden. Can they actually demonstrate that that meetings were conducted where Joe Biden was, you know, not just calling in and saying hi to his son and they're there. I mean, that was something well, that went beyond what they promised, but, but we need more. We need, we need more. more. And yeah. that's the problem. Fundamentally, I think that Hunter Biden might be going into this with the confidence of an open, of wanting an open hearing because Republicans have been beating this drum for years now, have had the House and the ability to do investigations now and have still not come up with a smoking gun. And I do wonder if this could be kind of the death knell to this whole inquiry. If they literally have the president's son on the stand, they're asking him direct questions about the play, pay for play, sure. and it becomes really clear that there's just nothing there. That's all fair, although there would have been no inquiry in the first place if, you know, top law enforcement and mainstream media mouthpieces had their way saying this whole thing was misinformation from the start, now having to repeatedly revise their articles saying, no, Joe Biden denies knowing anything about this. Okay, well, he did know something about this. Or this was all, this was a plant. Well, it wasn't really a plant, but all that kind of yeah, thing. That's I, why people are I skeptical agree. and suspicious. But the question is, and I, I'm genuinely asking this question, yeah. I don't know if it's Joe Biden trying to obfuscate when he says, oh, I know nothing about my, my son's business dealings. Oh, wait, I was on the call. Or if it's Joe Biden being kind of a serial fabulous exaggerator where he says in an overstated version of the truth, oh, I, I wasn't there. I, I, I did civil mm -hmm. rights. I was Martin Luther King. Right. <laughs> when he's trying to say something smaller and truer, oh, I... Yeah. you know, supported black people in this instance. Oh, I worked at an integrated pool. You know, I, I, I can't tell well, fine, how much of it is. Trump, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, they're, they're prosecuting Trump in four jurisdictions for, you know, some, for wildly overstating and mischaracterizing um, the way things work. Sure. The problem so. is if you do it to say that your apartment is three times bigger than it actually is, so you can um, gin up your uh, uh -huh. insurance coverage or whatever it is, or the, or the price of your, your property, it's a little bit different. Okay. More <laughs> rising right after this. federal judge has blocked former President Trump's attempts to subpoena information on January 6th after ruling the request was simply a fishing expedition. Trump has requested a subpoena for Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson, who led the House Select Committee on January 6th over alleged missing materials. The judge overseeing Trump's case, Tanya Chutkin, ruled that he failed to meet the legal bar for subpoenaing the officials. As The Hill reported, the broad scope of the records that defendant seeks and his vague description of their potential relevance resemble less a good-faith effort to obtain identified evidence than they do a general fishing expedition that attempts to use the Rule 17 subpoena as a discovery device. 
Meanwhile, attempts to tie legal liability for violence on January 6th to Trump seems to be stalling in court. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling on Trump's liability has been deliberating on three cases related to January 6th since last December, when lawyers initially made their case. Now, typically, the court rules on cases within four months of oral arguments. These legal developments come on the heels of an announcement that Trump will take the stand next month, defending himself in the New York-based civil fraud trial. Trump is scheduled to testify on December 11th. So with respect to January 6th, so he wanted to subpoena these officials who had been involved in the January 6th um, committee uh, meetings, those proceedings, uh, for some uh, some elements of those, of those hearings that were not preserved in archive form. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me. Some of them, it, so according to the Washington Post, only written transcripts were transferred after the January 6th committee dissolved to the archives. Video recordings of transcribed interviews and depositions, which featured prominently during the hearings, were not archived or transferred. So, I don't know. What do you make of that? Look, it's hard to know without more specifics. I was trying to read coverage of this, and very few people—I don't know if it's because it's a reporting failure or it's because the, the Trump team's requests were genu genuinely that broad and vague, but there's very little specifics on what Donald Trump's team hoped to actually get if they had a knowledge of a specific— document or conversation or recording that would have been dispositive. And I do think there is a, a reasonable argue, argument that you can't use this, um, uh, these Rule 17 subpoenas, which are supposed to be for the purpose of looking at evidence that's going to be presented at trial before it's presented at trial, as a kind of discovery motion and, and try to get around it that way. So you do have to show, demonstrate, make some kind of demonstration of what it is that you're actually looking for. Otherwise, you very much can weaponize discovery requests um, to create a, a level of busy work that ends up undermining your opponent's ability to put forward their case. So if, if Trump really does believe that there's something that's being hidden here or has good cause to believe, because obviously he can't know exactly right. what's being hidden from him, and that's that's not fair to him either, then I think there should be more development of those facts. Um, but what the court is saying uh, is that there was no obligation to preserve every scrap of um, notes that were um, created in the context of the January 6th hearing, and you can't kind of enforce a rule to, you know, what, what exactly is it that's going to be turned over? Every marginalia that you, you scribble down on the corner of a computer page? I mean, what is it that you're really looking for, and why is your case going to be harmed if it's not um, turned over? It causes me to remember that part of the January 6th Select Committee's, um, a, a video they'd put up that was one um, interview, I can't remember what the actual footage was in question, was actually taken down by YouTube for violating their election integrity policies <laughs> because it was... Uh, the, the same policy that we got in trouble for, saying that, oh, this was portraying a false claim about the election, even though it was mm -hmm. clearly in context trying to right. discredit a false claim about the election, and that was deemed um, something you couldn't put online. So anyway, yeah, this isn't going to make a huge difference for the Trump um, legal effort um, whatsoever. Um, you know, obviously, the prosecutors are trying to tie him to all the January 6th stuff. I think it is interesting, given um, some of the reporting now coming out about the, the footage of January 6th that's been disclosed by by the speaker, that you can, I guess you have to go to the Capitol to see all of it. But uh, more video clips are making their way onto social media that uh, many people have the perception is undercutting the narrative of what happened there. Obviously, there's 
still were. We know that there were people I saw firsthand. <laughs> I witnessed people smashing windows and doing other things. But there were also, we now see a video of people walking through the Capitol being escorted by police, not being stopped by police, who they might have had every reason to expect that they were not committing some, some crime, that their presence was welcome. That's what many of them claimed. Um, obviously, that does conflict with the people we can see on camera, um, you know, harassing and fighting with the cops. But I don't know. Uh, does that, you know, change the perception? And, and, and if that's out there, does that affect this trial? Well, I think that those videos, that evidence, is really important for those people who have for proof sure. that they weren't being violent and that they got tacit permission from the Capitol Police to be where they were. But that doesn't really have any bearing on what Trump is being charged with here. Trump isn't being charged with breaking and entering into the Capitol. He's not being charged with trespass. He's being charged with a conspiracy that started weeks before January 6th to um, uh, create fake documents, fraudulent documents, to create enough confusion at the Capitol that day with the, with the vice president to, to have two um, uh, slates of electors submitted to the vice president sufficient so that he can say, oh, there's ambiguity here. Let's throw this to the House. They decide the election instead of the American people. That's what's being charged here. And I do think part of the problem is that Democrats tried to focus on January, January 6th. 6th. They made the hearings all about January 6th and not Donald Trump. And so they have the effect of making a bunch of random Americans on the grounds that day looking bad, some of them deserve it and some of them committed crimes that they're going to have right. to be accountable for. Some of them not even there, being sentenced to 20 years for terrorism because this is being likened to a terrorist attack. I think this matters, should matter for those people. Absolutely. Because this continues to not look like or resemble a terrorist attack whatsoever. Maybe it matters for this effort that I don't really put a lot of faith in anyway, but this effort to keep Trump off the ballot under the constitutional mm. inciting and insurrection um, clause. Uh, so, you know, that hinges on whether this counts as an insurrection. It definitely counts as a riot at some points, but, you know, was it a, uh, uh, was what happened on January 6th an organized and concerted right. effort it's not to a, prevent the, I mean, the only looked, that, that looks very silly when you see a lot of these additional videos. Yeah. The, the only thing that could have prevented the election outcome was not a random person putting their feet no, on Nancy Pelosi's desk. And a lot of the mythology about, well, they had zip ties and they were going to prevent tie up congressmen. A lot of that has been debunked as well. The thing that really did have the effect to change uh, the potential of changing the election results was whether Mike Pence decided to go along with Donald Trump and his co-conspirators' scheme to give credit to what was plainly a fraudulent slate of electors. That's the one thing. And so, again, Democrats choosing not to focus on that, I think, was a problem, not just because of the miscarriage of justice against individuals and these terrorism charges and things like that that we're seeing being applied to protesters across the political field um, by people in power who don't want people to be able to challenge the, the establishment in any way, shape, or form, but specifically because it distracts from what Donald Trump, I think, can well be credibly accused of. Yeah, I think that's right. More rising right after this. More hostages have been released as a tenuous ceasefire between Hamas and Israel seems to be holding. Yesterday, Hamas released 11 hostages into Israel on Monday in exchange for 33 Palestinian civilians from an Israeli prison. Now, according to Al Jazeera, 17 of the Palestinian prisoners were minors, 15 boys and two girls. The remaining 22 were adult women. 
Palestinians' common offenses for the prisoners were accusations of threatening security officers, entering Israel illegally without a permit, supporting terrorism, and also associating with hostile or unknown organizations. Important to note, many of the prisoners were never formally convicted of terrorism, something Ambassador of Israel to the United States Michael Herzog appeared to lie about recently on CNN. Let's watch. 39 Palestinian prisoners, we're told, were released today. Do you intend to, along with uh, the potential release of Israeli hostages or civilian hostages who are held in Gaza, to continue to release Palestinian uh, prisoners? The, the short answer is yes. Uh, let me just refer to that and remind everybody that the prisoners that we released are people who were convicted uh, for participating in terror attacks. Uh, let's don't forget that Yichir Sinwar was released in such a deal by Israel in 2011. Look what we got. Yeah, well, a lot of them are, are accused. Some, of our, some are convicted, but some have not yet been adjudicated. I think that's fair uh, to say. They went through a legal process in Israel. Uh, we didn't kidnap them. That is we true. We don't arrest people just for nothing. That's a very important distinction. On a similar note, as conflicting reports on whether or not the Israeli hostages have been permitted to speak to the press after being released by Hamas mount, a series of dual media narratives have sprouted up. Some speculate that after the last series of released hostages said some kind things about how they were treated by Hamas in a viral video, Israel is trying to silence this narrative. As a refresher, here's some of that video. Bye now. Goodbye. The contents of this video have been debated. The Israeli government tweeted out the video with the caption, Keep waving. Hamas murdered their loved ones. Hamas violently kidnapped them from their homes. Hamas held them hostage for 49 days. Now smile at the camera and wave goodbye so the world will think they're human. Hamas is evil. But pro-Palestinian critics said the video depicts grateful Israelis thankful that Hamas treated them with kindness. One critic tweeted, Israel released hostages, broke the propaganda machine. Either Hamas gave them Hollywood-level acting classes or the Israeli propaganda machine is broken. Yeah, so this hostage discourse has been all over the place. Um, one other story I think that was making news was that there was one father who had spoken to the press, said that he was glad that his daughter had been killed by Hamas because being taken captive would have been a fate worse than death. Um, and then it, it said he had sought her body and grieved over it. And then it turns out that she was one of the kids that was released by uh, Hamas. And there was a heart heartwarming video of them hugging each other. But the framing of it, again, him being so clear that he had no, knew that she was died because he identified her body, and also that he was hopeful that she had died because being in ho a hostage was a wor face worse than death, caused many to both speculate on the credibility of some of the reports that are coming out of Israel. Um, and this, again, the framing of it as the barbarism of Hamas means that it's better to die. And what does it mean when you have your daughter safely returned to you? Does that um, undermine the narrative that's being um, put out there by Israel in the first place. Of course, taking hostages is a war crime and obviously condemnable in and of itself, but that's not the argument that Israel is making, right? It's that there's something particularly barbaric about Hamas and, according to some interlocutors in Israel, all of the people of Palestine. Yeah, look, I, I'm, 
I'm glad they treated the hostages well, if that's indeed the case. Um, it's Frankly, it's not surprising that they would treat them well from their own self-preservation perspective. The hostages are their bargaining chips. They, they uh, like, living hostages are their bargaining chips for what they're trying to accomplish, so they don't really have much incentive to to harm them. I'm, if they're not harming them, I'm, I'm glad that's the fact. Again, it doesn't—I don't think we need to fall—I I don't need to <laughs> fall over myself um, commending Hamas for um, not causing more harm to people they abducted from their homes and from a music festival and from other places as they were shooting the people all around them. Um, so that's, you know, that's fine. Um, Obviously—and then I would say, look, on the Palestinians being held by Israel, I, I, I don't— uh, I think the distinction uh, the ambassador was drawing there, and you probably are, know a lot more about this than I do, but it looks like many of them who are detained undergo this kind of military tribunal procedure mm -hmm. that has a lot of civil liberties issues with it, mm -hmm. where they're not meaningfully able to see the evidence against them and, in some cases, don't get uh, access to counsel. Look, I would find fault with that as a as a procedure, um, regardless of what governing body was doing it. Um, if these people are dangerous, if they're criminals, if they're murderers, if they're terrorists, they need to, you know, prove that beyond reasonable doubt in a in a respectable uh, in a in a court setting where the accused has every means uh, capable of defending themselves. Um, obviously, in the U.S., we hold people, we detain people for longer than we ought to because of uh, backlogs and all those kinds of things. So I don't know if that's the case in, in some of these circumstances. Well, but look, if they're innocent people, they should just be released regardless of it part of some exchange. Now, that doesn't... Now, Hamas doesn't get to grab random people and hold them for ransom in order to get that. Those people are not at fault. So it's not any, again, in any kind of equivalency, but we should just, they should just release people. They should charge them, convict them in fair proceedings, and then release them if they're not. Yeah, doing I, that. I agree, but there's a lot of shoulds. And we should talk about what is actually taking place. And what has become clear to people is that it is suspicious, unnerving, in fact, to find out that Israel has thousands and thousands of Palestinian prisoners, ready hostages, you could call them, given that they haven't actually been convicted of a crime, um, ready in, to exchange for the Israeli hostages, many of whom, let's not, let, let's not skirt over this reality as well, are literal children. Um, of the 33 that were released on Monday, 17 were minors, that 15 boys and two little girls, the remaining 22 were adult women. Now, of course, women can commit crimes. I'm not saying that at all. Well, and so can but teenage boys. Well, this is an argument that Palestinian, uh, that many, uh, at least one Israeli official made recently, that these one, these aren't really children. These Israel, uh, the, the Palestinian hostages aren't children. So, we, you know, is, Israeli teenagers can commit crimes too. Israeli kids can be well, bad sorry, kids yeah, as well. well. But the, the argument that's being made here is when the media is talking about uh, the prisoner releases, the hostage releases, they're saying things like, you know, X number of. Um, uh, Israeli children were released, as well as X number of Palestinian minors. Using the term minor suggests a kind of criminal criminality and culpability that has not been proven by any 
legitimate justice system, uh, even and in some cases not even by the military justice system that is being applied to some of these Palestinian right. captives. And if it's not been, then they should, again, charge them, convict them in fair proceedings, or let them go. I just, with, with teenage males in particular, and this is not at all unique to the Palestinian situation, this is true here in D.C. for the, the crime and carjacking increases we've had, it's disproportionately wildly being committed by um, teenage males in the like 14 to 18 demographic. I mean, that's a huge category of crime in every. So, so the, the fact that look, oh, they're minor. Well, that people in that age bracket. I, I think what people are objecting to when we're talking about minors is the idea that they would not have been convicted in a fair court of law, in a just court of law, and also that they're being treated very poorly and kept there for years of their lives. So, for example, um, there was a story going around about two young men who had been first arrested when they were ages four and five. Four and five was the first time that they were taken into custody. They're now they've ages, been in custody that entire no, no, time? No, no. They are now 17 and 18, and they had been in uh, serving two-year sentences, um, and that there were two of the ones that have just been released. And what were they charged with? What were they charged with? They weren't convicted of anything. That's the issue. They're, none of these people are being convicted in any in the same court of law that an Israeli citizen would be subjected or th to. These were the pair that the allegation was that they tried to stab someone. No, right? I, there was I, no allegation. Whatsoever. I, I don't know. I don't know about any stabbing allegation. I put the link in the in the chat if you want to Google their names in the interim. There was another young kid, Mohammed um, Nazal, who was released from jail, who talked about how he was treated. Um, including systemic torture of the prisoners. So we say it's in Hamas's best interest to treat prisoners well. Um, obviously, Israel doesn't feel the same way. There was a family member of one of the Israeli hostages who was begging Netanyahu and other state officials to stop saying we're treating uh, the Palestinian uh, captives poorly because he felt like you did, that it could potentially imperil his loved one mm -hmm. in, uh, that was cut by Hamas. The Israeli state doesn't seem to feel that way, as it routinely abuses uh, the Palestinian prisoners, including children, that are being kept. So again, this isn't about false equivalency, but it is asking this question. If the argument for why Israel is justified in killing 20,000 Gazans over the course of the last seven weeks is that they are particularly barbaric, and you're seeing evidence of the similar kind of state violence and barbarism happening in Israel toward the people of Palestine, then how can you continue to justify the wildly now disproportionate response that you've seen inflicted upon innocent children um, and others in Gaza disproportionately? I think the stat, by Israel's own accounting, is something like only 1,000 out of the uh, 20,000 killed are being argued are Hamas. Is that a, is that a legitimate kind of um, target rate? And, and can you credibly be saying that you are in fact targeting Hamas when the overwhelming majority of people that you are killing and also punishing brutally in your prisons are in fact children and other innocents? More rising right after this. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has downplayed rumors that former Governor Andrew Cuomo is plotting to launch a bid to take over Adams' seat. The current mayor said on Monday, I don't see him running. I think he is looking at his next political move, and there is a lot of things he can look at, but I have to be ready to run New York, and that is what I'm focused on doing right now. 
Politico reported last week that Cuomo is weighing a run for New York mayor amidst, amidst Adams' legal woes. In case you forgot, Andrew Cuomo resigned as governor over two years ago amid allegations of sexual harassment and claims that his administration covered up COVID-19 nursing home deaths. Mayor Adams, on the other hand, was accused of sexually assaulting a woman in 1993 in a legal filing made last week. Filing names Adams, the Transit Bureau of the New York Police Department, and the New York Police Department Guardians Association as defendants. Per the filing, the plaintiff was sexually assaulted by Eric Adams in the early 90s while they both worked for the city of New York, allegedly. Adams told reporters on Thursday this, quote, absolutely did not happen, and that he does not recall ever meeting this person. Here he is on MSNBC. I have uh, no idea, uh, you know, why this was brought forth. I don't recall ever meeting this person uh, over 30 years ago. Uh, this was uh, stated, uh, took place. Uh, and, you know, people like you who know me, I have always fought on behalf of not only women uh, specifically, but in general, uplifting people and protecting people. I protected people for 22 years as a police officer, and I know what it is uh, to make sure that people should always receive the protection that, that they deserve. Joining us now to discuss is movement lawyer and host of the Olurinati show, Olaimi Olurin. Welcome. Morning, everybody. Hi. It's good to see you again. Now, help us understand the context of this, because Eric Adams is not the only one. He's one of a, a, a handful of people who have recently, in the last week or so, been uh, charged or uh, accused of sexual uh, assault allegations kind of from the past, and it seems to be the result of this New York Adult Survivors Act expiring last Friday. Can you set up for us why it is that we're seeing so many of these new claims right now? Because the Adult Survivors Act actually allowed, I think, one more year, attacked on one more year onto the statute of limitations. And so now people are basically in the last year in which they can file these suits. And so that's why it's happening. But I think it's important to remember that this is not the only problem on Eric Adams' desk right now. Before this sexual assault allegations actually came into the picture, he's already being investigated by the FBI for issues related to his campaign and financing and funding. And the FBI raided his... Uh, his funds manager uh, raided there and took his phone. So Eric Adams has big problems all around beyond just these sexual assault allegations. Yes, uh, we talked about the uh, the FBI issue on the show um, uh, earlier, last week, something like that. So definitely there are other issues at play. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't know, um, while everyone has the right you know, to make accusations, even if they were from a long time ago, I, you know, I think, frankly, it's, it's hard to um, adjudicate, um, you know, issues from more than 30 years ago we're talking in this case, even if they have a right to do it. I, I don't know, you know, how much, as, as a, you know, if I was a voter or a supporter of Eric Adams, I'm not sure I would necessarily judge him differently for something this long ago, you know, without trying to, you know, weigh in to the truth of the matter or trying to decide. Um, that seems tricky. I think even if you felt that way, which I, I think is, um, I'm sure, reasonable for some people, I think it's important to remember that Eric Adams' approval rating that just dropped last week is 36% across the board. So even if it weren't for the sexual assault allegations, New Yorkers are dissatisfied with his administration in terms of the massive budget cuts that we just saw to libraries, to school, to education, and then yet uh, budget raises for the NYPD and new, uh, new robots going around in the subway stations, despite the fact that the libraries are now closed on the weekend. So Eric Adams, people are dissatisfied with his administration for a series of things that stop and frisk is back up, that they're getting ready to do a federal a federal receivership, that uh, um, 
he has he has been caught lying about several things, right? There have been a number of different incidents that have been in the news. So New Yorkers are dissatisfied with Eric Adams, even if they didn't buy into the sexual assault allegations, they already they already want him out, it seems. And I think that has a lot to do with what you're seeing go on with him and Cuomo, because I don't think that I think regardless of whether or not Andrew Cuomo intends to run, which I think is foolhardy because he is literally our disgraced ex-governor. And regardless of what has happened with Eric Adams' popularity, he is still somebody who had to be had to resign after 11 sexual assault allegations in New York State. The attorney general found that there was credibility in 11 different allegations. So we still don't want him. But I think it's important to think about the context as to why he's saying this now, because I think this is a recognition that the tides are turning on Eric Adams, that Andrew Cuomo even feels willing to say this loudly that he'd run for mayor. And I think Eric Adams need to downplay whether or not he's run. He's running is basically trying to hold off and thwart people from coming out and speaking against him now or people being willing to run against him or people will, being willing to take him on. So I, I think that's what we're seeing is that the tides are shifting on Eric Adams. Yeah, I was going to say, you want to talk about sexual misconduct allegations. Um, what Cuomo faced was a lot more recent, uh, was adjudicated much more substantially. And frankly, those allegations were just the tip of the iceberg. Um, a, a lot of people, including a state senator, made, uh, frankly, even more serious accusations of uh, COVID, the nursing home deaths being uh, attributed to his policies. Also, very well demonstrated his efforts to cover that up in order to have his book sell more. Um, so this is, you know, not, I, I think, a figure that um, people are necessarily clamoring for, but I'm not in New York. I'm not, you know, talking to the people on the ground. Um, is there some fondness for uh, Cuomo that, you know, wouldn't be obvious no. to national reporters <laughs> in another city? No, I don't think there's any fondness <laughs> for Cuomo. But I do think that what happened to Cuomo is mirroring a lot of what's happening to Eric Adams, right? Before the, the sexual assault allegations were what ultimately put the nail in Cuomo's coffin, what happened first was the, the scandal with the nursing homes, uh, public outcry about how he was handling Rikers, and then the sexual assault allegations happened. In Eric Adams' case, it has been the news. This is this is well substantiated all over the news and the federal receivership and the federal the federal monitor that's in charge of looking over Rikers has already spoken to this, but multiple things. Adam, Eric Adams reestablished stop and frisk. Eric Adams got rid of the policy in which the New York Department, New York's Department of Corrections would inform the public when in-custody deaths happened. Eric Adams decided he'd had enough of public outcry about the fact that there have been more deaths in Rikers than ever before now that he's been mayor. So he stopped. He completely got rid of the policy, and they stopped announcing in-custody deaths altogether. Then there were repeated scandals of multiple death cover-ups at Rikers. And then, then now you have the, the FBA the FBI looking into his campaign. And then now you have these sexual assault allegations. So I think Eric Adams is actually getting ready to go to Way Cuomo. Yeah, I mean, the polls, we're not New Yorkers, but there are, there is polling of New Yorkers that echoes what you're saying here, uh, Ole. 33% uh, 30, of city respondents think that with respect to the Turkish debacle, the FBI investigation, that he did something illegal, that's 33 percent. 39 percent think that he did something unethical but not illegal, meaning the overwhelming majority think that he did something seriously wrong. You alluded to some of these budget issues. I've seen a lot of people complaining that while you have these robots that are uh, going through the subway station that are being escorted by police officers, unclear what their purpose is, um, there's no funding to keep the libraries open on the weekends when people need libraries. Um, I, 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 
and, and the, your points being made about Rikers and some of the ongoing criminal justice issues in New York City um, really ring true. If not Cuomo, then who? Because we know we got into this Eric Adams situation in part because there was a failure to consolidate around a um, liberal or a left-leaning candidate um, once uh, Stringer dropped out suddenly in response to different, a different set of sexual uh, uh, allegations, misconduct allegations that were considered to be, in retrospect, I think, much less serious than some of the, the allegations that we're talking about with respect to Cuomo and others. I think we have the opposite problem now. You know, I fully agree. I discussed that in my basically documentary on Eric Adams that I have on my show about uh, the mayoral election and the the, um, the rank choice, the rank choice and how we got into that issue of people not consolidating. Now I think we have the opposite problem. We haven't had really anybody willing to become a contender, not any serious ones that I've heard of, against Eric Adams. And I think because when I was last having these kind of conversations with people on the ground and organizers, it seemed like the consensus was that it was too late that someone would have had to start earlier that no one was really willing to challenge him. But I think that the tides are going to turn on that because I think that was when it seemed established or it seemed assumed that he would get another term because it wasn't a contender. Now that there are all these allegations and it seemed like he might end up losing, he might end up having to resign resign in disgrace altogether, let alone be able to run for a second term. So I think maybe now I'm going to look and see if other people emerge as willing to run against him. Right now, all I've heard from is Andrew Cuomo, and we don't want him. No one's taking Andrew Cuomo. So I'm, as of now, there are no serious contenders for Eric Adams. But I think we might see now that the tides are turning to um, turning against him, and I think the Democratic establishment is starting to turn on him, probably with all of his noise about the migrant crisis and complaining about Joe Biden. I think that we'll see probably someone willing to challenge him. Hmm. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, y'all. What's at the end of the rainbow? Not a pot of gold, but apparently government tyranny and censorship. In Ireland, they are set to pass a new hate speech law that critics warn would be the most radical ever seen in the West. As cultural critic Nate Hockman noted on Twitter, the law criminalizes the mere possession of materials that are, quote, likely to incite violence or hatred. Books, videos, even memes on your phone. Irish Prime Minister Leo Vardarker claimed the new law was necessary as the advent of social media marked new territory for hate speech that needed to be regulated. Take a listen. In addition to that, I think it's now very obvious to anyone who might have doubted it um, that our incitement hatred legislation is just not up to date. It's not up to date for the social media age. Uh, and we need that legislation through, and we need it through within a matter of weeks, um, because it's not just the platforms who have a responsibility here, and they do. Uh, there's also the individuals uh, who post messages and images online uh, that stir up hatred and violence, uh, and we need to be able to use laws to go after them individually as well. Other members of the government also tried to justify the need for new anti-hate speech laws. Senator Pauline O'Reilly acknowledged that the law would curtail freedom, but that it was for the common good. Let's watch. When you think about it, all law, all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. That's exactly what we're doing here, is we are restricting freedom, but we're doing it for the common good. You will see throughout our constitution, yes, you have rights, but they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced. And if your views on other people's identities go to make their lives unsafe, insecure, and cause them such deep discomfort that they cannot live in peace, then I believe that it is our job as legislators to restrict those freedoms for the common good. 
very much saying the quiet part out loud there. Um, I mean, the, the issue is she's not wrong that every piece of legislation, every community decision about how we should run our lives is about restrictions. It's, but the point isn't that the balancing test is always going to be there, and so we shouldn't question it. The question is, in this case, whether or not the balancing test is being weighed appropriately. Is the risk of taking away people's freedom of speech worth whatever kind of perceived benefit to public safety will accrue by policing what's on people's telephones? And what is the dividing line between having a meme on your phone that the government says speaks to a real danger that you present to the public and a thought crime. Sure. And these aren't theoretical examples. Um, I've written about, I've covered cases. I, I think when I testified before the U.S. Um, Commission on Civil Rights, I cited these cases in Britain of people being um, fined by the government for posting um, offensive um, rap lyrics on social media. Mm. That was one thing that happened. There was that famous case of this guy who like made his dog do the Nazi salute to be funny or whatever, mm. made a video of it, and um, he got in legal jeopardy for that. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's cases in Germany of some ancient Nazi lady getting like hauled off to jail. Is this really making public safety? Are, are they going to arrest uh, Prince uh, Harry for that uh, Nazi costume that he wore in his youth? Exactly. Are they going to not uh, arrest that uh, little boy at the Kansas City Chiefs game with the um, Native American headdress on and the half black face? That oh, you have to believe we're going to be talking about that more uh, <laughs> at some point. Um, yeah, no, this is, and in fact, what I'm sure you're worried about yes. is that this is going to come after pro-Palestinian speech as is happening everywhere in uh, Europe, crackdowns on uh, on speech become crackdowns on on protest. And look, the, the you know when when they talk, so I'm, I'm looking at this the law. So the BBC put out a piece that was very defensive of this law and noting all the like it says in the law, you'll still be able to debate and discuss issues regarding protected characteristics. You'll still be able to offend people. You just you cannot incite hatred or violence against others. You can be offensive, say things that make others uncomfortable, and have full and robust debate. But there, that woman was saying again, she said if it's about safety, yeah, you can't you can't engage in violence. We don't need that's already illegal. But when it goes to discomfort, she said discomfort, we're going to stop other people from feeling uncomfortable. And that is very, very worrisome because people's discomfort is subjective. And if, if you can use people's feelings to delegitimize your political expression, um, that would be very harmful. Now, of course, Ireland, like a lot of other countries in Europe, doesn't have the robust First Amendment protections we enjoy in the U.S. So it's not really a question of you know, if they try to do something like this in the U.S., you can bring a lawsuit. Our Supreme Court is very— well. Yes and no. I mean, part of my concern here. Well, I mean, we have, just to finish my point. Sure. In Europe, it is not as robustly protected legally sure. as it is here in the U.S. Sure, but Go again, ahead. these are slippery slopes. And what we experienced just in the last week was Elon Musk saying that the terms decolonization and from the river to the sea are no longer going to be allowed on the Twitter app. This is someone who's come out strongly against this Ireland law, but doesn't seem to see the parallels in the way that he's running one of the biggest, most important social media sites, at least for journalists, in the entire world. Yeah. So, you know, we have it's not just what's going on in Ireland that should be a concern in, in a kind of abstract way. We have conservatives banning whole um, categories of uh, academic study at public universities saying, I don't think that people should be learning about African-American studies. You have book bans all across the country because these books are perceived to be inciting violence against white children. You have, um, obviously, these social media bans on terms that 
are, you can dispute what you think that the terms mean, but it is perfectly allowed to go on these apps and go on the mainstream news and say, I think that Palestinians, Hamas is committing a genocide, but not to say the same thing about um, Israel as they've now killed uh, 20,000 people in Gaza. And Elon Musk seems to be wanting to straddle this fence here, saying the Irish law is bad, but then turning around after going to Israel and meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu, saying, uh, now we're going to ban terms like decolonization right. or from the river to the sea if it's pertaining to Israel. So I think that was a big mistake. I think that obviously violates the free speech commitments Elon has said. Uh, Michael Schellenberger agreed with us mm -hmm. when we had him on. Um, he has faced pressure to do I wish he would stand up to the pressure. He's not standing up to the pressure. He's faced tremendous pressure to do it because of these anti hate speech organizations like the ADL and Media Matters. And so this is a good example how bad faith concerns about hate speech and incivility and discomfort in society are used to attack legitimate political expression. And, uh, and you're right, I wish you wouldn't make that decision. But it's exactly this kind of thing, exactly this kind of reason that we ought to resist the push that Ireland is doing. And, and obviously, you know, there are hate speech. So there, there are hate crime In the U.S., there are Obviously, there are hate crime, hate crime statutes. So you can face, you can't be charged for being hateful. That's not a crime. But if you commit a crime, and then it is, it is proven, shown to be because of prejudice against um, a protected class, you can be charged with an enhanced sentence. And a lot of civil liberties-minded folks, myself included, are not particularly comfortable with that set of laws. But they've stood up so far. Um, I, I think, you know. Uh, Crime is crime. And then you can still weigh, like a, a judge and jury can weigh, can decide it, it's even more heinous for whatever reason or, be, you know, because you had malice. But to have it structured on the books, um, yeah. to me, is, is not great. But that's, you know, that's a different yeah. conversation. I, I, I have some discomfort with it, too. But I think it is worth noting that I think part of the impetus for those kinds of laws was that if you look statistically at the sentences that people were getting for, say, killing a white person versus killing a black person, regardless of the race of the perpetrator, that when you kill black people, you get lower sentences. People don't care as much. Juries don't punish you as much. And we've seen um, there's similar laws that say if you kill a judge, if you target a judge, let's say, because you're a defendant in a case, that you have a higher penalty. And it's the, the point is to have deterrence. So if you have observable patterns where you think that there's not enough deterrence effect because the juries aren't sentencing as high as they would for a different kind of victim, um, or because people are more vulnerable. Let's say a judge who oversees all these criminal cases is more vulnerable because yeah. they are making decisions that are bad for mobsters and the like, then you want to protect them more. I think that there is rationality to that, whether or not it is necessary if there is at least a baseline kind of um, sentence for people. This is a conversation people are having, obviously, about the three Palestinian kids uh, who were shot in Vermont recently. We don't know as much as we will eventually about the facts leading up to their killing. But there is a, a, a debate right now. Is it a hate crime? Is it not? I would like to think that the penalty that you get for attempting to murder three people Should be is so, big, so, steep, so high yeah, that it has sure. a deterrent right. effect regardless. And, and you would probably agree with this. Taking sentencing, broadly speaking, I, I, I hear what you're saying about incidences where people were, you know, juries were not going back, juries would not convict, you know, white people for crimes against black people, that kind of thing. However, broadly speaking, taking sentencing out of the hands of judges and juries and having them just like de facto in the law has led toward, what, over-incarceration and also has taken away people's rights to actually meaningfully defend themselves because the sentences are so, the required sentence, the mandated sentences are so high, people don't yeah. want to risk trials and just plead yeah. guilty. And that's why you don't have, and then, and then are kind of 
deprived of meaningful debate. Yeah, I hear that. But mandatory sentencing and um, elevated sentencing, sure. uh, you know, are a little bit different issues. But I hear what you're saying. Yeah. All right. What do you think? Let us know in the comments. More rising right after this. The primary is getting ugly as super PAC supporting former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis spending millions of dollars attacking each other. The man they're both ignoring? Frontrunner Donald Trump. Mediaite reports that while the pro-Haley Stand for America super PAC has spent more than $3.5 million on anti-DeSantis messaging over the past two months. It's dedicated an astonishing $0 toward attacking <laughs> Trump. $28 million reportedly spent on pro-Haley initiatives, while $25,000 spent on ads against President Joe Biden. The pro-DeSantis Never Back Down Super PAC, meanwhile, has reportedly spent more than $4.5 million on messaging against Haley and $375,000 on messaging against Donald Trump. The reticence to attack Trump has not gone unnoticed. Protest candidate and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie criticized Haley and DeSantis earlier this month as running for second place. As The Hill reported, Christie said, I am the only candidate running against Donald Trump. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis seem to be running against each other for second place. Good for them. When Nikki Haley stands on the stage on Wednesday night and says Donald Trump was the right president for the right time, when Ron DeSantis continues to defend Donald Trump, you cannot beat someone unless you run against them. I mean, easy for Chris Christie to say from fifth place. <laughs> so let's, not like his strategy is working. Sure, but I mean, Robbie, do you think in a world where all the Republican candidates were willing to be critical of Donald Trump and there wasn't this, like, um, collective action problem, that it, they would diffuse the backlash against all of them and it would just seem like a normal primary? Their poll numbers would just be lower. I mean, that's the, the, the reality is that there is no attacking Trump doesn't work. It's not going to work. Republican voters love Trump, and he's going to be the candidate unless this very unique legal position he's in mm. somehow develops in a way that he ultimately decides not to be the candidate, in which case running for second place is not a crazy strategy. Honestly, their strategy is, given, given the reality, now a year ago it looked like maybe Maybe Ron DeSantis could overtake Trump. Trump's approval ratings were a little bit lower. DeSantis was riding the post-COVID high. It was before maybe all the legal issues came in and actually made uh, Republicans rally to Trump even harder. It looked plausible. And maybe we didn't understand DeSantis' weakness as a candidate at that point. Now it looks like it's utterly impossible, virtually impossible. There's still some outsider shot that an early primary victory propels a, a DeSantis or a Haley or a Ramaswamy to some greater uh, platform of media attention and support that they could get the nomination. It's not Im utterly impossible, but it's extremely unlikely. Trump will be the nominee, barring those legal uh, issues, in which case running for second place is frankly not even a, a stupid strategy. So what are all these super PAC ad spins about then? Well, are destroying they the only in, person you can destroy. But are they are they really that invested? Spending millions of dollars in some cases, not to attack Trump, but to attack a, a Haley yeah. or a Ron DeSantis. I, 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 is it, I understand why any of those individuals would say, want to be running for second, they want to be vice president, and maybe four years from now be the president. But all of the people who are donating millions and millions of dollars, is it just in case of the eventuality or the, the possibility that Donald Trump might have to drop out because of his legal troubles? Yeah, I think it's that possibility or, again, the, the distant sliver of a chance that you could, you could ride an upset, a win in Iowa, New Hampshire to some greater success. Um, I mean, look, 
a lot of news is happening every day. We can't, we don't know what things are gonna be like a year from now. We don't, I mean, Donald Trump could die suddenly. Um, like, things could happen. It's not crazy to leave your hat in the ring in, in, in an unlikely eventuality. And in that eventuality, the person you gotta defeat is not, in fact, Trump, if you're DeSantis or Haley, but it's each other and Ramaswamy. So I don't, it's not irrational for them to be spending a lot of money against each other. There is the VP pick potential. Frankly, I don't think, um, I don't think there's any way in the world Trump would pick DeSantis as his VP, because mm -hmm. they just, Trump seems to loathe DeSantis and has disparaged him so frequently, doesn't want him. Yeah, you're um, not going to want a, meat, meat, a meatball. No. <laughs> a man that you described as a meatball is Him picking two. Haley also seems I extremely unlikely, Why? although the fact that I, I don't think there's a lot of love lost between them. Really? I don't think so. I don't think he likes her. Yeah, but he doesn't like anybody. But he does well, have the ability. It doesn't seem like he was over the moon about Mike Pence, I got to say. Well, but that was a beginning. practical decision. It was, let's get the evangelicals on board. Now there's some question about whether or not Trump needs anybody to help him rally the troops. He's yeah. compared to the rest of the field so popular. But Nikki Haley does help him ward off some of the accusations of being misogynistic, uh, not liking people of color. It helps the ticket look better and him being able to put himself forward as a modern contemporary I mean, candidate. I fully expect him to make a diversity pick for this for this slot, um, a Tim Tim Scott perhaps, hmm. maybe Nikki Haley. Um, a lot of people talk about the South Carolina governor. So um, then, what's Christy the point? Nome. What's the point of spending millions of dollars in the attack ads against the second and third place people if there's a real possibility in your eyes that he's going to pick a guy who already dropped out of the race? Yeah, again, it's for the event, it's for the possibility of Trump somehow not being the candidate for some reason, which is not very likely, but could happen. Yeah, I mean, I think the other part that is curious to me is that we're talking about super PACs here, which have the ability to do these independent expenditures that, that, where they say, hey, the candidate directed me to do this. Obviously, if you're the yeah. if you're the Ron DeSantis super PAC, then Ron DeSantis is going to get you know a, a associated with whatever attack ad you would do against Donald Trump. But there is this ability to have these independent organizations running attack ads against Donald Trump without it being tied to a given candidate. So again, it is curious to me, you know, what are the actual incentives of the people who are giving money to these groups to say, I am so invested in a Nikki Haley over Ron DeSantis or the other way around, when, but I'm not invested at all in disrupting well, Donald Trump's are, ability to be the candidate. I mean, what, what, are, what, what is motivating the decision-making here where they're not all basically going to be the same on some level in terms of protecting the Republican status well, there, quo. Well, I'm sure there are Republican donors giving a lot of money to those candidates um, who, who basically take the view that they don't think Trump can win again, or they think a different candidate will be more likely to defeat which Biden. Which polls reflect. Which polls do, in fact, reflect. Polls reflect Nikki Haley doing the best in a matchup of all the candidates against Joe Biden. So I'll give her money in kind of a naive hope that that helps her become the candidate without even an awareness that she's mostly spending it against DeSantis. Right. Yeah. That, that's what seems so convoluted here. I don't I know. I mean, the path, just the path to knocking Trump out of this position, it's, it's, it does, it feels, it feels real, real impossible. You mentioned before we started recording that the Koch brothers have... Yes, uh, the Charles Koch um, network, uh, Charles Koch, obviously a, a billionaire, um, uh, and a donor uh, to many Republican causes in the past became, I think, entered the public's consciousness during like the Tea Party mm. 2010 political movement, um, where they were very involved in getting Republican candidates, um, wanting them to run on lower taxes, less regulation, kind of libertarian sort of um, values. Uh, they are not big fans of Trump, never were. Because? Um, 
Because, frankly, I, I think they don't think on um, taxes and regulation, and they want free trade, free markets, all those kinds of so things. So the populist he things was going got in the wrong direction. Yeah. Now that said, they are very—they're for non-interventionism. They're not—they have not been supportive of neoconservative, uh, neoconservatism. They—they uh, they, some uh, uh, thinkers and writers and commentators affiliated with their network um, took a very kind of in line with us view of Russia, Ukraine mm -hmm. as a libertarian. So it's not surprising they would have that view. They have endorsed Nikki Haley. This is the candidate of the Koch Network. And I should disclose that I also write for Reason Magazine, which in the past has uh, received money from, uh, from this network, uh, libertarian fellow travelers, et cetera. So I am fairly familiar with their contributions to political dialogue. Um, they've endorsed Haley. Uh, I think that's interesting. I, I think they see her as, as again, the, the candidate most likely to win, who does share a lot of their values on the economic stuff. Mm. Uh, she's, again, she has not, not populist urgings on those subjects. Of course, she is the most hawkish mm -hmm. of all the Republican candidates running, which is not so in line with their professed values. Um, but interesting, nonetheless. Interesting, nonetheless. All right, stick around. We'll have more rising for you right after this. Seems President Joe Biden is guilty of contributing to the multiple narratives surrounding the Israel-Palestine conflict. A recent Washington Post report revealed that Biden was advised not to talk about the beheaded baby story because it was unconfirmed, but he chose to ignore that advice. He also has privately admitted he was wrong to publicly question the Palestinian death toll. So these are from a couple of stories that have come out over the course of the holiday weekend. The first one, uh, he was advised before he made that uh, speech a few weeks ago, that very like strong in support of um, Israel's speech in the wake of October 7th, that he had personally witnessed the uh, behead, 40 beheaded babies. He was apparently not just corrected after the fact, but told beforehand by his own advisors, don't say that, it's unconfirmed. He chose to say it anyway. That comes out in a recent story. And then perhaps um, more, more relevant to what's going on currently, uh, is this other story that says that behind the scenes, he is acknowledging that he was wrong to publicly question whether whether or not the, um, uh, you know, Hamas medical authority, the only medical authority that exists in Gaza's reporting of how many people had died in Gaza was reputable. Remember, after he said, if we can question Hamas, you know, threw into question those numbers, all of the media reporting, um, they, they uh, media matter, uh, not media matters, but um, in a media accounting group, went through and found all of the instances in which the uh, death toll in Gaza was reported, and there was a market shift in the proportion of, of caveats that journalists put on the death toll numbers after Joe Biden threw them into question. And now, of course, there's been pushback. Um, the Palestinian death toll numbers have historically been in line with what independent corroborators have been able to find after the fact of various tragedies over time. That's why they were credited in the first place. But despite having integrity historically, now there is a lot more skepticism about those numbers that can be tied directly to Joe Biden's own um, skepticism there. Sure. I think it was wrong to downplay the casualty estimates in general just because things are usually always worse than reported. Like, you know, we're seeing images mm -hmm. and there's more that we're not seeing going on. Um, I, I don't know that this puts the Gaza, I mean, 
I, I still think the Gaza Health Ministry should be taken with a grain of salt. I saw reporting over the weekend that now the Human Rights Watch, which is an internationally renowned human rights organization, says, for instance, that they were able to confirm based on their investigation that the ho that hospital explosion we debated or the media debated endlessly from a few weeks ago was in fact caused by a misfire Palestinian rocket and that the death total there was was far under what was reported um, so I, I think where Joe Biden goes wrong is making you know blanket or asserting statements um, in general we ought to be that we have a fog of war situation we ought to be very careful and um, you know I, I agree with you that he got ahead of his skis on both of those issues I mean it's not just that I mean it's that he knew he was warned in advance and this is something we've seen of Biden before you hear him in speeches saying things like they don't want me to say this but and then he'll go on mm -hmm. or they don't like it when I tell this story but uh, this one time I was a uh, Lifeguard and all the black kids love to touch my blonde leg hairs. You know, he loves to well, tell like these to, Sometimes we like to know that he's not just a mouthpiece for his handlers. Sure, but sometimes your handlers are leading you in the right direction. Sometimes they're letting you know that you've got something factually wrong. Sometimes they're telling you that the weird story you keep telling about the pool isn't going over with voters in the way that you think it, it is. And in cases like this, I mean, I, I think people are frustrated because he does have this incredible influence as the president of the United States of America, not just in setting the tone of the media coverage in this country and around the world, but more specifically to affect Israeli policy that has led directly to all of these deaths in Gaza. So a little bit more color here. Um, uh, the Washington Post reported that this came out uh, because he had met with some prominent Muslim Americans after his speech, who uh, the Post writes, protested what they saw as his insensitivity to the civilians who were dying. All spoke of people they knew who had been affected by the suffering in Gaza, including a woman who had lost 100 members of her family. Biden appeared to be affected by their account. I'm sorry, I'm disappointed in myself, he told the group, according to two people familiar with the meeting. I will do better. Now, some people look at that and say, oh, he has empathy. He's the classic empathetic Joe Biden. Other people look at that and say, why did it take you? You know, you're seeing the reporting of how many people are, are dying. You know that just, Justin Amash's family members were killed. You, you can talk to Rashida Tlaib right there in Congress anytime that you want. Why did it take this meeting for you to finally hear what Arab Americans, Palestinian Americans specifically, have been saying all of this time? And then the other part that they have concern about is, you say you will do better? Has he done better since this meeting, which happened relatively shortly after uh, October 7th? Now we're over a month out from this crisis, and many people feel as though he has not used his power of the, the presidency the way that other presidents have in the past, including Ronald Reagan, to, to use that leverage to affect what's going on in Gaza. So we're in the middle of this temporary ceasefire. There's some debate about whether or not it's going to get extended. Joe Biden says, I hope, I'm hopeful that it's extended. I'm hopeful that it's extended. Okay, well, why not say we're going to with, withhold right. aid unless you extend it or make it permanent? Um, that we're going to condition aid. That This is a debate that's happening right now in Congress, whether or not we should condition the aid when U.S. law is already that aid, all aid is conditioned on it not being used to execute war crimes and, and violate international law. I mean, one can't help but come to the conclusion that Joe Biden is a very weak president um, who's bullied by um, international uh, political figures who are like Zelensky as well, who have received tons of support, financial support from the U.S. taxpayer, and 
and do whatever they want anyway, um, including, again, potentially we're still debating the Nord Stream and if the U.S. was involved in that. Uh, you know, one line says we were not involved in that, and they did this of their own accord, even though we didn't want it, although some officials may have wanted it. It's more complicated than that. Um, they have suspended um, opposition parties and opposition media, um, and then Israel, too, doing a lot of mm -hmm. things that um, I think the U.S. government should rationally worry is going to further embolden terrorism and harm our own security interests. And it's like, well, no, 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 we just, we just give them the money. We don't, we might, we might ask, maybe you could do it this way, maybe you could do it that way, but it's, it's theirs. As you point out, that's not how previous presidents, that's not how Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush treated their relationship with Israel that's right. and with other countries. Um, the idea was this money ought to be conditional. One starts to worry that American taxpayers are treated like the biggest chumps on the face of the earth, giving unconditionally in return for what? In return for nothing. I pointed this out before, but we're also, we also fund the humanitarian effort to rescue right. Gaza after this. We blow them up. We have to pay, we pay for blowing them up, which doesn't make us safer, and then we pay for rebuilding them. We pay it all. Yeah. Why? Yeah, and, and look, we're talking 1.7 million out of the 2.3 now that are internally displaced. People in the ceasefire are trying to go back to their homes to find absolutely nothing there, unrecognizable neighborhoods. You have, I believe it was Yov Gallant, who's this, I think, defense minister that we've referenced a lot in Israel, uh, saying that after the ceasefire ends, the intention is to go strike harder and siege Gaza harder than they were doing so before. At the same time that you're having these prisoner releases and exchanges, um, the same number of Palestinians that have been imprisoned, including a large number of women and children, are being rounded up and imprisoned and uh, taken from the West Bank so that they're keeping the same number, ultimately, of Palestinians um, in captivity, despite le letting some of them out in exchange for all of the Israeli hostages. You have um, a recent clip of from the last couple of days of Netanyahu saying that he is the only one arguing internally to his opponents in Israel and to people who might support him, that only he can prevent a two-state solution, only he can prevent the creation of a Palestinian state. This is the context of what's going on there at the same time that Biden's saying, well, I'm hopeful that the ceasefire will extend. I'm hopeful we can have a two-state solution. Not looking at the reality, either intentionally or because he's an incompetent leader, I don't know what, what other way to put it, uh, the reality of what's before him and well, not using been, any of American he's leverage He's been part here. of the blob, the bipartisan foreign policy consensus for literally for decades. Yeah. He's gone along with, um, except in the, finally he got in the Afghanistan pullout, he, although it was Trump who committed to that, he's yeah. merely agreed to execute it at long last, uh, the U.S. gaining nothing in that entire war effort. But apart from that, he's been, he's been part of the, he, there's some, I've uh, been reporting that maybe he warned Obama about the Libya disaster and mm -hmm. Obama listened to Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. but he, he wasn't persuaded. Another example of him not leveraging any of his power to achieve a more desirable foreign policy outcome for the U.S. Yeah. So, Honestly, we knew what we were getting into with this guy, but here we are. Some, some of us did. <laughs> All right, stick around. We're rising for you right after this.
NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell is facing pressure to speak out after a fan at this at, uh, Kansas City Chiefs game uh, at the stadium over the weekend was spotted with black, fa uh, black paint covering half of his face and wearing a Native American headdress. Some Twitter users, however, noted that the article from Deadspin erroneously stated that the fan was wearing blackface. That was in the headline at Deadspin. Users on Twitter pointed out several fans in attendance noted the other half of his face is painted red. So this is uh, another one of those kind of viral social media controversies. Um, the Deadspin article is, I mean, crazy in my view. It's, it's headlined, the NFL needs to speak out against the Kansas City Chiefs fan in blackface. Um, and it's a, it's a little boy, like he needs to be denounced by the NFL. Um, he is not, you know, committing the um, very appropriate wrongdoing of, you know, darkening his skin to mock black people, which is a historical trope, but is in fact, you know, wearing the colors of the team. The other side is red. Um, it's just not, like, it's not the same thing. Yeah, so the, the Deadspin article does address some of that. It does say, so here, here's what they say. They say, um, here's some unanswered questions that are raised by this shot. Why did the camera person give this fan the attention? Why did the producer allow that camera angle to be aired at all? Is that fan a kid, a teenager or a young adult, uh, despite their age, who taught that person that what they were wearing was appropriate? So I, I do think that the focus is a little bit less on the kid and more on the decision of the well, then you know, it's like camera saying, operators and why is the people. camera operator opening him up to the criticism of what exactly what we're about to do? Well, no, I think it's a little bit different. So I would say that fans are going to fan, and people are allowed to, you know, write, let's say, a vulgar message on their chest. And you would expect that if someone wrote, um, eat S-H-I-T, uh, Mm -hmm. Eagles, that the, the camera would choose not to put that on national TV, right? It would be considered to be inappropriate. They might get a, some kind of uh, FCC strike. You know, you can't curse on TV, and you wouldn't zoom in on a sign that said something mm -hmm. inappropriate. Now, the question is, if we, if we believe that is the case, you know, is the decision maker, is the camera operator or the producer of the show making a different kind of decision? Is this a reflective of their values and that they think this is appropriate? And then if you abstract that out more broadly, there's this bigger question that the NFL and other leagues have been dealing with for a long time, which is whether or not it's appropriate to have team names and mascots that are Native American people. So all of this is kind of like a nesting doll of concerns that I don't think to the extent that people are mad or focusing on this little boy, I agree that that's wrong. And it's clear that he's not doing blackface in a traditional way of what blackface means. But I don't think that quite gets you out of these bigger questions about the league's obligation to deal with these kind of um, messaging issues around their mascots. Sure. I mean, it does. Uh, there was a recent um, controversy that um, got covered at Reason while I also work of this um, this boy at a middle school who had on the black, his entire face was not covered with black. He had like the black kind of war paint look, which is a sports thing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's just a very different thing. Mm -hmm. And um, he was suspended from school because of it. Um, actually, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression defended him uh, as well. I cite them a lot lately, um, you know, pointing out that, no, he can't, this is legitimate expression, not political expression, just expression, and you can't punish him for this. It was a public high school. Um, so there's a lot of conflation. Like, over time, I think some some media critics, some of these sites like Deadspin have, have taken a very broad view of what counts as blackface all of a sudden that is not um, 
based in like historical reality and is just like looking for people, usually kids, to be mad at. So that was kind of the backdrop as this was happening. Obviously, there are some people who think the entire the Chiefs logo and the headdress is offensive and is not what they should do. Obviously, other teams, sports teams, have pivoted away from um, from Native American um, names and imagery and that kind of thing. You know, it's like people can make up for their, their own mind whether they're offended by the Chiefs name, that kind of thing. But yeah, the Chiefs is rough. <laughs> I mean, look, I understand so? growing up with a franchise and you're committed to it. My family's from Cleveland. We've obviously just shifted to the Guardians. Every, everyone seems kind of okay with it. We're here in D.C. The, the Nationals were, what before? Uh, the Re the, the Redskins. Redskins. Yeah, the Redskins. The Redskins. I mean, like, I think the Nationals isn't as good a name as the Guardians, but that's for D.C. to work out. Picking a bad new name. Or the Commanders. Is, the, the Commanders, commanders sorry. Commanders. The Commanders, yeah. Um, so that is that the is what it is. Were, what, the, were the senators before? I think. Oh, well, that's an upgrade. <laughs> that was a that happened a while ago. Uh, but you know, people are going to have their subjective opinions about that. I think we all have to acknowledge that our attitudes to that kind of iconography and they, don't they do like that, like tomahawk chop? That's so one of their cheers. Doing that. Small blessings. You know, it just doesn't sit right with a significant portion of the country the way that it did 50 years ago. And you can argue that, you can debate it, but I kind of think that ship has left the station and this is where we are. And so if you want to be appealing to the broadest possible audience, and this is what it's all about, right? Advertising dollars and making money for these franchises, they're going to make decisions that are in line with that. And I do think, you know, whether or not it's fair, there are gonna be there are gonna be these little backlashes when your camera operator also they kind of did this kid dirty only doing the one side of his face <laughs> like but when your camera camera operator makes those kind of production choices you're gonna get backlash and you can't you can't silence like you can't yeah. when you know repress people's speech just don't so either you don't care double down and everything's fine and your team to is your all team all these very bland names because everything is so on PC it's gonna be it's gonna be only animals because that doesn't well in Cleveland the Guardians there's a there's a bridge that you go over that you that leads you right up to the stadium that's kind of big and majestic and like Art Deco mm -hmm. and there's two figurines like guarding the edge of the bridge that are the Cleveland Guardians and they're a landmark in and of themselves. So I actually think it's kind of fitting and really nice. Mm. And you know because of like the physicality of they're literally like looking over the stadium and it's it's kind of nice and historic. Hey, I don't know. I think we're headed to uh, what is it from community the Greendale human being. <laughs> <laughs> yes. that well, come on, Robbie. Most most sports teams don't use Native American names, and the Cowboys, the Patriots. I mean, there's a lot of options out there that aren't. I don't know, but where does this? What about the uh, the Vikings? Is the Vikings offensive? The Minnesota Vikings? If, if Vikings, Vikings, Vikings pillage people who don't exist. If Vikings uh, who don't exist think. Uh, what get, do you mean they don't exist? Well, the contemporary Vi Vikings. Well, they're people of Nordic descent. Sure. If if the descendants of Vikings say, say it's a problem, then then they can't. But I also I would think laugh that at them. The, the first Native American <laughs> I would laugh at them. I think the reason like Redskins went before, let's say Chiefs, is because it wasn't just Native Americans. It's not just the Seminoles. I mean, there's teams that are named yeah. after peoples. It's Redskins. Redskin. Okay. I'm not fighting over Redskins. So it's Vikings, and also it's the skin you know, color and Celtics. A, and Chief is a position. Like a commander sure. or a captain or sure. a, you know what I mean? Sure. So I think the chiefs chiefs might and have. And the headdresses are cool looking. Like no one can wear one just because a group of people historically in this country wore them. 
you can wear them. As this kid, no one was arresting him and hauling him off. This is in Ireland. It's not illegal yet to wear a headdress. Yeah. And I support his right to wear one. But I, I also think, I'm it's sorry. Cool and fun. You have to be willing to deal. You have to be willing to deal with the backlash. And I don't not wear a headdress because I think... It's illegal. I don't wear. I don't not wear a headdress because I don't think they're beautiful. I choose not to wear a headdress because I know that there are some people in my community that are going to be offended by it, and it's not worth it for me. And I don't want to offend them. They have experienced a lot as a people, as a community in the United States of America, and it's just no skin off my back to just avoid wearing a headdress. So that's that's the balancing test. The kid can wear one, and the parent can encourage them to wear one, but that's between them. That's their that's their own parenting choices. Mm. All right. Uh, that was our debate on this subject. You can weigh in in the comments. Tomorrow on Rising, investigative reporter Michael Schellenberger will be joining us in studio for an exclusive interview. Very exciting. You won't want to miss it. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.